0: Welcome to The Labor of Love, a podcast about marriage, family, and making peace with the people we live with. I'm Lori Leibovitch, editor of RealSimple.com. I met Ariel Levy 16 years ago when we were students in the same writing workshop. At the time, Ariel was working on a novel about a young girl who lived in New York City with her brilliant and yet abusive mother. I remember being impressed by Ariel's writing style, but I also remember thinking that maybe the mother character needed to be toned down a bit. I couldn't imagine someone being that dramatic and over-the-top in real life. Fast forward to this past June, when I read a review of Ariel's memoir, An Abbreviated Life, in the New York Times. As it turns out, the mother from her long-ago novel was very, very real. The memoir is about Levy's tumultuous childhood living in an Upper East Side penthouse with her mother, who was by turns neglectful, unstable, and physically abusive— Ariel writes about being constantly on edge and made to feel that her behavior is what determined her mother's mindset and moods. Her father, a lawyer, had moved to Thailand when she was young. While Ariel visited him in summers, she was mostly left in the care of sitters and other adults who tried to provide her with the stability that her mother could not. Ariel is here with me today to discuss her new memoir, the new perspective she's gained by putting physical and emotional distance between herself and her mother, and the life she's rebuilt in Bali with her partner, Mario, and his twin daughters. Thanks for joining me today, Ariel Levy. Hi, Lori. So, Ariel, you and I met about 17 years ago when we were both in a writing workshop, and at the time, you were writing fiction about a girl and her mother. So fast forward 17 years, and you have a memoir about your own mother. And I wanted to know why you decided to write it as nonfiction and not as fiction.
1: Well, first, I want to say it's funny that you said that, because when I started writing it as fiction, I think a part of me felt that it was too outlandish to be believed, and that I had to fictionalize it in order for people to not doubt that it was real. But I got to a point where I felt I was ready to tell the story. I would tell the truth and that was it. There was no hiding anymore. And uh, and I just had to, it was time to to get it out.
0: And get it out for yourself, get it out for the record, get it out to have a way of speaking to your mother about what it was like for you to be a child? What was... Well, let me think. I did... I had
1: to express it in order to be free. And there was motivation also knowing that there would be other people who would read about the experience that I had and feel less alone.
0: So there's no denying the dysfunction... In your household growing up, your mother's behavior was erratic. She was physically and emotionally abusive. She wanted your constant love and attention and yet often left you alone for long periods of time. And all of this happens in this backdrop of a very rarefied. Upper East Side, privileged world of private school and famous artists kind of coming in and out of your mother's life. Norman Mailer makes an appearance. Andy Warhol makes an appearance. I wonder, were you ever concerned that by being so upfront about the way you were raised in terms of the affluence and the cultural milieu in which you were raised that people might dismiss your story as being the whining of someone privileged.
1: There are a couple of things I want to say. First, the reason that I included them is because they were there, not because they had any impact on me. So I was setting the scene of the world and they were part of the scene. So. My mother was a poet, and she was surrounded by artists and other poets, and the apartment I grew up in had a salon-like environment. If I had grown up you know, with my mother as a, as a nurse, I'm sure I would have written about doctors and nurses being in the apartment. Getting to the second part of what you were saying, I think that the material comforts, and I do feel strongly about this, did not compensate for what was missing. I never felt safe. I never felt at peace. I never felt protected in a way that was necessary to have a sense of stability, emotional stability. So the fact that I had this beautiful apartment made it more difficult for me to acknowledge in some ways the deficit of what was missing because I was being told I had all these things that should somehow mollify me And yet at the same time, I felt tremendous panic, insecurity and destabilizing feelings and, you know, just total lack of consistency.
0: So that comes across so beautifully, I think, in the book. And there are several scenes where you describe what it's like to be a child at one of these salons or at one of these impromptu gatherings that your mother sort of held court at at the apartment, which from the point of view from an adult sounds like these very glamorous evenings, and yet you narrate them from the point of view of a little girl who can't go to sleep and has this soundtrack that is incredibly loud and interrupts her space, I'd love it if you could read a passage from the book that I think really gets to this and plays into this idea of safety and what what you were missing.
1: This is from a chapter where I'm I'm writing about what precedes this was a sense of feeling bombarded and not feeling I was able to have peace in my own home. The piano was on the other side of the wall from my room. Composers would play the score for one of my mother's musicals, and someone would bring the lyrics from the songs that she wrote. Performances happened late at night, 10 or 11, and my mother relished the entertainment. I waited it out, until I couldn't stand it anymore, and then had to confront the ruckus. Quiet, I would shout, bolting up in the dark. Quiet. I was desperate, exasperated. I needed to sleep. Be quiet, I yelled as loudly as I could, but it wasn't heard. There was an opera singer in the middle of an aria. There was a violinist playing Mozart, an actor doing a monologue. Everybody, I heard my mother cry out, it's time for the belly dancing. I threw off my covers and got out of bed, protesting the disturbance. My mother swore to me that after the belly dancer, the guests would go home. Suddenly, Middle Eastern music blasted, and a famous belly dancer from Cairo in a two-piece costume with jangling bells on her bra and chains on her torso emerged, shimmering from out of my mother's bedroom with finger symbols striking together to punctuate the dramatic moves, a percussive whirlwind of undulating hips moved around the living room and culminated in a backbend. I would return to my bed, press my hands over my ears to block out the noise, and plot my escape.
0: Part of this book is written, obviously, from your memories and the feelings that you had as a child, but you got a gift of sorts from a woman named Rita, who plays a big part in your story. For those people who haven't read the book, Rita was an ex-girlfriend of your father's. Your father, when you were five, I believe, moved from New York to Thailand. But Rita kept checking in with you, and she would visit you, and she was one of the only adults in your life who was consistent. What you found later was that Rita was writing letters to your father throughout your life, reporting back on what she was seeing in your home and what she was seeing your mother do. Did you always know that she was reporting to your father?
1: I did have a sense that Rita, from the very beginning, was like a guardian angel. I I was so young when she came into my life, but I knew immediately that this was someone who was there to protect me. I didn't know at the time that she was keeping these meticulous notes. I mean it's pretty extraordinary what she did because it was the 70s and she would type on a typewriter single-spaced letters with a carbon behind them. So they would make a copy. And these letters were four or five pages long. I mean, as I wrote in the book, there was literally no space in between. All you would see was black ink on the page. And they were like dispatches from the front lines of having gone to my home, my apartment, been around the situation. And she was writing these letters to my father, who was in Bangkok at the time, letting him know everything that was going on. But in a way that was so comprehensive and we stayed in touch. And when I was an adult and she said she had these letters and she gave them to me. I had such a – it was such a surreal experience to receive this pile of letters that were about my childhood because it was like a documentary but on the page and I would be reading about this child who was – in these situations, and in danger, emotional danger, and sometimes physical danger. But I couldn't believe it was me. There was such a disconnect. It was as though I was reading a story about this situation, because to actually have those moments where I re- it would hit me, it was me, were were so intense that I I would have to stop and put the letters down.
0: I guess I wonder, what do you make of your fathers receiving these letters? And I have to say, just honestly. Throughout the book, the question that I kept returning to was, where is her father? Why isn't he coming back and saving this child? I found myself almost angry about it. You don't betray anger towards him. I'm wondering how that's possible.
1: There was no room for anger. I needed a parent. I needed someone who I could have a loving connection to that was real and that was able to sustain me. And my relationship with my father when I was with him was very loving and very caring and very nurturing. And the circumstances of of why he couldn't rescue me are complicated legally. It was the seventies, fathers weren't granted custody of children, especially when the mother was, you know, a functional parent, at least, you know, to to the eyes of the courts. And Mm -hmm. Also, my mother was financially, you know, carrying the burden of taking care of me. There's a lot of reasons why he couldn't get custody of me legally, but he tried. And that was really what was what mattered to me was that he wasn't passive. He did try as best as he could.
0: Something to give listeners an example of what kinds of outrageous behavior was happening in your house, mostly your mother's behavior you know, again, there were guests and and lovers and boyfriends at times, too. But something that she enjoyed playing with you was a game called Being Born. Mm-hmm. Can you explain what that game was like?
1: My mother would recreate what she said was the happiest day of her life, which was giving birth. And she would, I was about five or six. I was in first grade and I had a friend and my friend and I would get under the It would basically get into bed with her and she would recreate giving birth and simulate that she was naked under the sheets and I was clothed and my friend was clothed, but we would pretend to, you know, come out of her vagina and she would make the sounds of giving birth. And it was incredibly inappropriate, but I didn't realize it until much later in life when I was telling this story in therapy. And my therapist had a look on her face that really alarmed me. And I recognized when she said that how abnormal it was. At the time, my mother, because she herself was such a child, I don't, it wasn't a titillating experience for her. It was just a, a fun game that we played in her mind. So it, to me, that really illustrated the total lack
0: of boundaries. You don't have a relationship with your mom Now, as an adult,
1: my relationship with my mother right now is uh, I'm working on figuring out how it's going to unfold.
0: But for a long time, you she didn't know where you were.
1: Yeah, it was self-protection, too. I, I was in Bali and I was actually working on my book from Bali. And when I went there, I met Mario and he had two twin little girls. And as I also write about in the book, I became a stepmother to them in a way that allowed me to see for the first time how it felt to be six years old and need time and attention and to be listened to and the key nutrients that children need and that changed the course of the book quite a bit, actually, because it had started off being more about the developmental changes that occur in the brain when children are exposed to chronic trauma and anxiety. And as I it was experiencing in my life, being around the children, by giving to them what I had missed out on, the book was sort of, it was rerouted. And I had to include that part in in the book because that was such a transformative part of my own story.
0: You also write in terms of that and in terms of being a stepmother of needing and understanding that as the adult, it was important for you not to share everything with the children, not to express anxiety necessarily, not to... Um, To have boundaries, I think, is the simplest way to say it, which, again, was something you were learning at quite an advanced age, something that you had had modeled.
1: Completely. I think the most... A seminal moment was at one point one of the girls asked me if I was okay or if I was worried about something. They were concerned about my emotional well-being. And that alarmed me because I realized children should not be responsible for the emotional well-being of their parent. Or a parent shouldn't make the child feel responsible. That shouldn't be their burden.
0: Can you talk about the ways in which your mother made you feel responsible for her well-being?
1: It was understood at a very, very early age that her needs came first and that if she was okay, I was okay. So her moods were so unpredictable that I would have to manage her anxiety in order to feel calm. And one example of that was when I wrote in the book about going to the eye doctor for the first time and My mother was hysterical because she felt I was going blind and she said her father had been blind and all of this, which, you know, there was a lot of embellishment and inconsistency. But the point is that routine office visit when I was, I think, 11 years old carved out a lifetime fear of going blind. There was no reason for that other than my mother's anxiety about it.
0: I feel that your ability to write through this, to me, felt, you know, I, I'm imagining it was cathartic. I'm imagining it was incredibly painful. I'm imagining that I almost felt myself feeling so happy for you that you had the ability to be a writer to get through this. Because you think about people who don't have that particular outlet right, or any outlet right. to get through it. What do those people do with all of this?
1: Well, I do want to say that the irony of that is I owe that to my mother. Right. You know, I do say that as a writer, she gave me the tools to be able to save myself. And that was championing my expression and believing in me and giving me a confidence. And that was something she actually did give me that was useful, that helped me, that I could believe in myself that way, allowed me to transcend the past. But to answer your question, what do other people do? I think everybody has a way to express themselves. It might not be through words. It could be through cooking or it could be through dancing or it could be through I don't know, having children. Somehow, you know, I I think that people do find ways to to climb out of the ruins. And I've always found great solace in reading about other people's pain and experiences because it does give me that feeling of connectivity that I think we all need so that we don't feel we're in isolation.
0: Ariel Levy, thank you so much for being on The Labor of Love today.
1: Thanks, Lori. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: Thank you so much for joining me today on The Labor of Love. Email me your questions, comments, and suggestions for topics and guests at tlolpodcast@gmail.com. at gmail.com. I'd like to thank our producer, Kristen Meinzer, and our editor, Tim Einenkel. If you enjoyed the episode, please review and subscribe on iTunes, where you'll also find more podcasts from Real Simple. You can subscribe to The Labor of Love at itunes.com panoply or at panoply.fm. I'm Lori Leibovitch, and I'll see you next time on The Labor of Love.